Peter began this letter with a reference to how God worked in the hearts and lives of these, these elect people, these people to whom he writes, building them up as believers. He stressed their salvation was exclusively the work of God. He explained that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Not that God chose them based on anything they would do, but based on his eternal decree made from before the creation of the world. He also shows that this salvation into which they have been called will be completed. It will be completed through a divinely appointed set of means. Means such as sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ. The promise of the new covenant was what Peter had in mind. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the new covenant where God changes the heart from stone to flesh. He also gives with a new heart and new spirit his own Holy Spirit. Peter says that believers are chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Unless the Holy Spirit is in your heart, unless it is guiding you to see your sin, your desperate need of a Savior, and that Jesus Christ is that Savior, you will never be saved. Why is this means necessary? Because God wants his people to be obedient to Jesus Christ. How can they become obedient to him? Only through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Jesus as he speaks of the Spirit in John 14, 6. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The Spirit is given to each and every believer to teach them of Jesus Christ. Unless you know Christ, you cannot call yourself a believer. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit is sent into the believer's heart as part of the promise of the new covenant. The purpose of the Holy Spirit's coming into their heart is to teach them about Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of his coming is to teach believers that they must trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus tells us in John 16, 14, the reason for the Holy Spirit's ministry. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine, and he will declare it to you. Jesus continues this thought in verse 15. When he says, all things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. When the Holy Spirit is placed in a believer's heart, he takes the truth of God. The truth that God has sent his only begotten son into this world. He shows that salvation is possible only through him to all who will hear and understand. No one no one who receives the Holy Spirit will fail to know Jesus Christ 
For that's the Spirit's whole purpose. Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This is what Peter is saying. We must come to God, and we must come through Jesus Christ by the God-ordained means of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He also adds another means through the sprinkled blood of Christ. No one can come to the Father except he come through the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. This does not mean simply mean God covers us with Christ's blood. I've heard sermons where they talking about being washed in the blood. That's the only way you can be saved. They've missed the point. It's not what we're talking about. It means our taking hold of what that blood represents on our behalf. 1 Peter 1, 18-21 Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You cannot. You cannot come to the Father except you come through Jesus Christ and the works he performed for you on Calvary's cross. Jesus made this clear in John 14, 6 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Unless you believe, unless you trust in Christ alone, you cannot be saved. However, this is not the first cause of your salvation. The first cause of your salvation is the electing decree of God. That makes believing the second cause of your salvation. Everyone who receives a new heart by the decree of God also receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. He then... He is then enabled to hear and understand the good news of the gospel because the Holy Spirit is within you. He's opened your heart. He's opened your mind so you can see and grasp, I'm a sinner. I have need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ is the only one who can save me. Believing on Jesus is the results in your heart, and it is a work that will be brought to completion only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter makes it very clear. No one can be saved and brought to the Father without believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is the plan of redemption as it was given by the Father in heaven. In the next verses, Paul opens for us a deeper understanding of these things. He first speaks of the suffering all who walk this path of salvation that leads to rejoicing must endure Second, he informs us of the trials that await along the path. Third, he shows that this path can only be followed by those who believe. Last, he shows what awaits at the end of that path. Peter has given this wonderful understanding of salvation. 
He says, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you're saved. He has told us that it is prepared and waiting and it is being kept for us in heaven. Peter then tells us in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Once God gives you his grace, it will never be taken away. What Peter wants you to understand in these remarks is that salvation is a lifetime process. Yes, you're saved by grace, and it's yours, and nothing can hinder the final results. But you must understand that in this world, salvation is a process of faith. That process is completed only when you come to heaven. Faith is a work. In John 6, 29, we find a group of people who've been following Jesus. And he had fed them, thousands of them, miraculously. They wanted him to do more for them. How does he respond to them? He tells them that they must work for food, if they must not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. They don't understand. So they ask him, what must we do to do the works of God? That's a good question. I often wondered that myself many times. He answers them. The work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. That's a direct quote from Jesus Christ. The work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. Here is the truth of all Peter is saying. If you want to be in God's service, if you want to be a child of God, if you want to be an heir and co-heir with Christ, if you want all of these things in your life, you must believe on this one sent by the Father. Yes, all of this is a work. It's a work you cannot do by your own power. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul makes clear that this work is not your work. If it's your work, what could you do? You could go out and boast about it. He says you cannot boast. Why? Because it's God's work. So we show that faith is a work. It is a work of God, but what about men? How is faith a work in man? James 2, verses 18 through 22. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is, a God, is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? 
Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. This is a perfect example from God. First, doing a divine work in the heart. Then continuing that work by outward means directed by the Holy Spirit. Abraham's heart was changed. His heart changed was proved by his actions and obedience to God's command. The first cause was God's work in his heart. The second cause was his obedient action as directed by the Holy Spirit. Peter tells you that this divine action of God and his continued work through your life should bring great rejoicing to your heart. The rejoicing comes even in the face of suffering and trial. It's through these many sufferings and trials that you know God is at work in your life, drawing you ever closer to him. Why do you have to suffer as a Christian? You ever ask that? I think most of us have. Because your Lord suffered. He suffered, as Peter tells you in 1 Peter 4.13, that you must participate in his sufferings if you're truly his. Jesus says in John 15, 20, the world hated him. And if it hated him, it will hate all who follow him. This is the means. This is the means through which you are molded into his image and it is a part of your salvation. It's a part of that process of salvation. Changing you from a sinner to a saint. It's this process that Peter comes to explain in verse 7. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You will be led through trials as a believer. They cannot be avoided by a true believer. Why? Because they are a part of the means God has foreordained to mold you into the image of his dear son. The end of all believers' afflictions is the trial or genuineness of their faith. How many times? How many times have you heard or maybe even asked the question yourself, why do believers have to suffer? Peter gives us the answer in verse 7. Now let me give you a very little translation of that answer. So that the proving of your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revealing of Jesus Christ. He's not calling you to do this so God can see how great your faith is. God doesn't need to do that. He already knows. God is the giver of faith. What he is calling for here is that you come to a stronger understanding of the depth of your faith. This is a means through which God helps all believers to grow. Consider these examples. Abraham is tested when he is told to go to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. His faith is proved. Job is tested when God allows Satan to attack him. The process of testing requires time. After the time has gone by, after the test ended, the results become clear, 
and you see your faith and its increase. Abraham overcame by his faith when he heard the angel tell him not to harm the child and said, Now I know that you fear God. Job learned about his relationship with God through his trial. Because of his increase in faith, God blessed the latter part of his life even more than the first. Afflictions are brought on the serious Christian as means through which God builds their faith. Romans 10.17 tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. What do trials drive the believer to do? It drives him to God's word. And it is his reliance in the scripture that bring him through the trial and builds him up in his confidence of the truth of God's word. Remember, faith is simply put, believing what God says. How better to grow in that than seeing God's promises fulfilled in your life? Peter uses the analogy of the refining of gold to explain this. Our faith is refined in the cauldron of trial, much the same way gold is refined in the furnace. It's heated up until it's liquefied, and this causes the impurities to rise to the top where they can be removed. So it is with your faith. You are put under pressure to believe God and those superstitions and self-motivated ideas come to the top where you can easily identify them and remove them. He says in the process of the refining of gold, some of that gold is lost, but not so with your faith. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, that faith will always remain. It can never be destroyed. It is a gift of God. And just as the giver is eternal, so is the gift. The only way you can show your faith is to be completely trusting God, and that is what the trials are designed to bring out, your trust of God and of God alone. What will be the final results of these trials in your life? They will result in praise, honor, and glory being brought to Jesus. What will this be made, when will this be made clear? When Christ appears. What are you going to do with those things that you've gathered? You're going to cast them at his feet. Here is the purpose of all the works believers are given to do. To show your appreciation of all that Christ has done for you in his perfect life, atoning death and resurrection victory. Peter understood this very well because of a prayer Christ prayed for him. That prayer was in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked you, that you, for you that you may be sifted as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Peter has lived what he's explaining. He went through the trial and his faith was proved. And Jesus knew when it was proved, he would be able to go forth and teach his brothers. In light of this possibility to teach, Peter commends these people for their faith. Verse 8, whom having not seen you love, though you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. There are two reasons given 
for his commendation of their faith. First, he commends them because they believe in Jesus Christ, whom they have never seen and cannot now see. It is one thing to believe in God as we have seen. Even the demons do so, and they tremble. It's quite another thing to believe in Christ. To believe in Christ denotes an understanding of your subjection and reliance on him for all things, as well as an appreciation or expectation of all the promised good given through him. Second, he commends them based on two very important things produced by their faith. Love for Christ and joy inexpressible. For everyone who has faith in Christ, there will be fruits produced because of that faith. They will acknowledge their sinfulness. They will reveal their need of a Savior. They will believe and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Once they have grown in their understanding of his grace, and his mercy, they will be overjoyed at the work he is doing in their lives. True faith never stands alone. It always produces a strong love for Jesus Christ. Why do Christians have such a strong love of Jesus? Because they believe in him and the work he has done on their behalf. It is this belief in Christ and the understanding of all he has accomplished for you that produces this great love and joy. Even in the face of these sufferings, they will experience his love and joy. James 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Patience is growth in faith. You go through the trial. You learn you can depend on the promises of God's word. You see that he will not let you down. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He will build you up. He will bring you to himself. James 1.4 But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here's the means God has decreed. The means he's decreed to bring each and every one he has called to a perfect and mature place not only to make them mature in this life, but to secure their end. What is that end? Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Note, he says, you're receiving, not you have received. This is very important. It's important because it makes clear that salvation is this ongoing process. It is a process decreed by God, begun by his sovereign act of changing your heart from stone to flesh. Once it's begun, he is still the mover and not you. But he has prepared a set of means by which you do participate under the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Peter said in verse 2, You are elect in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul agrees with this statement. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification of the, by the Spirit and belief in the truth, 
to which he has called you to our, by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does he not make it very clear here? God is the one. God is the one who called you. And when did he do it from? From the very beginning. He chose you to be saved. How is your salvation to take place? It will be through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth of God's Word. John 6, 44 tells you, you cannot come to Jesus Christ unless God first works in your heart and calls you. You cannot come to heaven to be with the Father unless you hear, unless you understand the gospel message given through Jesus Christ. What will be the end of this process of maturing? The eternal salvation of your soul. How can you know that this process will bring you to salvation in Jesus Christ and eternal rest in him? There is a way. There is a way. The Apostle Paul saw that way and he laid it out for us. Philippians 1, verses 3 through 6. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He says you have a partnership. You have a fellowship in the gospel. What does he mean? It is a partnership in faith. God has given the faith and you're called to exercise that faith. This is the whole reason behind God placing his spirit in your new heart. It was to enable you to do with the faith what God had decreed it will do and that was to save your soul. Salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. He says, once he has begun a good work in you, the changing of your heart, he will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, carry it on to maturity. Your salvation is the work of a sovereign God. But it is a work he is designed to be worked through with you as an active partner. This is how you can grow in love and joy. Because you work giving the privilege, you, were, you are given the privilege of seeing his work bring you to maturity in Jesus Christ. And the maturity he speaks of is the maturity of hope and the salvation promised in Jesus Christ. In conclusion, I would ask you to please carefully consider the message Peter presents to you in these opening verses. It's a very, very important message. It has eternal significance. Jesus Christ was sent into this world by God the Father to do for men, to do for them what they could never do for themselves. He came to save a people out of a mass of sinful humanity for himself. Who are these people? They are called the called of God, the elect, if you will. They are the ones given a new heart and made alive in Christ Jesus. But it's more. They are those who are to be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, set apart with lives and, and to live lives, holy, holy lives. Lives that testify of their changed heart. Lives that will bring praise, honor, and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ through their unflinching belief in Him 
as the one from heaven by the Father and to save his people from their sins. Do you understand? Your salvation is the work of God from the beginning to the end, but he gives you work to do within it that you cannot do without his Holy Spirit. So you have nothing whatsoever to boast in. Please do not leave this place this morning without acknowledging your sinful heart, your need of a Savior, and that Jesus Christ is the only possible Savior. For I can assure you, not one soul, not one, will enter the gates of heaven without believing in him. 1 John 2.23 says, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ and Christ alone that can save your soul. Turn to him. Turn to him right now. Place your hope, your trust in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we know how wicked and evil our hearts can be. We know how desperate we are, how we can do nothing ourselves to change our hearts. We know our complete dependence on you and on your grace and mercy. Here now, I plea, come in among us, work in every heart here this morning. Open them. Open them to see their sin, to see their need of a Savior, and to show them Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, whom you sent into this world to save your people. You said in John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the life, and the truth. No one come, can come to you except through him. Help us by your power to come and stand before your throne. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.